Welcome to the Brick Podcast, produced here at the Brick Store Museum in Kennebunk, Maine. Bricks construct our communities and link past, present, and future. Here in Maine, bricks can be found in our town halls, our sidewalks, our schools, our cultural institutions, our courts, our homes, and our fireplaces. As cultural metaphors, bricks can describe our strength, a brick house, our suffering, oh, hit like a ton of bricks, our frustration, hitting a brick wall, our determination, brick by brick, and our way home too. Just follow the yellow brick road. As bricks weave through our community and our culture, this podcast will do the same. My name is Cynthia Walker. I'm the executive director here at the Brickstore Museum and the host of the Brick Podcast. In this episode, you'll hear news and updates from the museum and an oral history citizen spotlight with the owner of Home and Away Gallery in Kennebunkport, David Schultz. Prior to the show, I want to say a special thanks to our business members who support this continuing programming through museum membership. That's Clark Insurance, Deering Lumber, Houston and Company, Old House Parts, Well Housed, Home and Away Gallery, Huzzy Seating, Weir's Buick GMC, and Duffy's Tavern and Grill. To sign up as a business member, which offers benefits of museum membership to all of your employees, including free admission to our museum, as well as over 900 other museums across North America, it's always good for a vacation, you can visit brickstoremuseum.org support and learn a little bit more about it. Individual members interested in taking advantage of that free admission I just mentioned to over 900 museums across North America can also access this benefit by joining us as a sustaining friend. That's more information on our website right at the support page. Coming up here at the museum, June 1st sees the opening of our summer exhibit called The Art of Mending, which is guest curated and installed by Illustration Institute based in Portland, Maine. After this past year, we invite you to come explore the three-dimensional art of mending. With relaxed state guidelines, the museum now welcomes guests without a reservation, as capacity is no longer limited. We're still asking everyone wear a mask, however, while you're inside the exhibitions for the safety of young children and unvaccinated visitors. This also means we'll be hosting hybrid events for this summer and fall. So for those of us who love the ease of access of virtual programming, we will have those things. And for those of you looking forward to gathering in groups again, we're planning some great in-person events too. All of our upcoming events can be found on our website. When you go to the homepage, there's a little calendar button right at the top left-hand corner and you can see what's coming up. One item that the staff and board of the Brickstore Museum are working on behind the scenes is our strategic plan for the next five years. We get to take an in-depth look at where we want the museum to go and how we can reach wider audiences. We need your help to do this. If you are interested in being part of the community planning team, please email me at cwalker at brickstoremuseum.org. This Citizen Spotlight was recorded in November 2020. 
during which I sat down across the Zoom screen from David Schultz, owner of Home and Away Gallery in Kennebunkport. David's story is exactly why citizen spotlights are so special. Every person has an incredibly interesting story about their lives and how he or she has lived it, and David is no exception. Like last month's podcast, I'll just note that because this was recorded over Zoom during the pandemic, there was a bit of background noise. At the time of the recording, David and his wife Anne were doing as many parents and grandparents did during the pandemic. They were caring for young children who were learning from home. Without further ado, here is David. David, if you would start with our starting question, just to give everyone some context for your life, uh, what generation will you consider yourself a part of? Baby Boomer. And tell me about your first name. Where does it come from? One of my mother's relatives had been named David. And uh, in the Jewish tradition, you tend to name children after a dead relative, not a living relative. So, um, so I'm pretty sure that's where it came from. And tell me a little bit about where, where you grew up and what you remember most about it. Sure. So um, I grew up on the island of Puerto Rico first in the city called Arecibo, and um, that's about 50 miles west of San Juan, lived there for about 10 years, and then uh, moved to San Juan, lived there for about five years. So what do I remember about it? Well, uh, I remember that uh, the weather was nicely around, and we were able to play outside, baseball, basketball, ride bikes, do whatever we wanted, uh, go to the beach sometimes. And, uh, you know, in that regard, it was a very, very special experience. The, uh, of course, I, I grew up speaking Spanish as well as English, and um, the, you know, that experience was, was different, but to me, it was just kind of natural. Uh, so today, uh, compared with many other Americans, uh, uh, I, I seem to be in the minority of people that speak two languages somewhat fluently. Uh, so that's kind of a different and interesting aspect that came from where I grew up. Wow. Yeah, I would say so. If you don't mind me asking how your parents obviously were living there. Did, were yeah. they born there or what, what was the story? No, no. So my father uh, was born in Germany and he left Germany um, just before World War II to, uh, you know, to escape the, the Nazi regime. And um, my mother, so he first went to Palestine and then moved to uh, the New York area in around 1940 or so. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> yeah, his parents had left Germany at a different time. They all got back together in, in New York. And my mother was born in New York. Her parents had come there in 1921. So she was uh, actually, and that was the year she was born. I think her mother was pregnant. So uh, my, my mother can be considered a uh, first generation or yeah. whatever. She could be considered <laughs> an immigrant, you know. Um, and my father was definitely an immigrant. But in any event, so my father's family uh, had a uh, brush manufacturing business. They decided to open a factory in Puerto Rico in 1948 when some new laws were passed to make it more attractive for American companies to open oh, wow. uh, operations in Puerto Rico. It was called Operation Bootstrap. And uh, essentially any profits from the Puerto Rican operations were... Uh, not taxable. So oh. that's when they moved there and I was born uh, three years later. Very good. You lived there, am, am I forgetting, 10 years? Uh, 10 years in a, 
city called Arecibo, and then another five years in San Juan. Wow. Okay. Um, so when you were younger, what toy do you remember playing with? I, you know, a few things come to mind. Uh, bicycle, playing basketball. We had a basketball hoop in the yard and um, playing Cowboys and Indians. So, oh, yeah. uh, you know, cowboy hat and a gun with caps and <laughs> cowboy boots. <laughs> and I, I skipped the question, actually. So uh, you were talking about your parents. Yeah. Um, do you have any siblings? Um, I do. I have an older sister, Barbara. Uh, an older brother, Jeff, who passed away a couple of years ago, and oh, wow. a younger brother, Ken. Wow. <laughs> so a four nice of us, yeah. Tell me something that you know about your ancestors. It can be anything. Okay, so this is a story that uh, it's kind of family lore. It, it's somewhat been confirmed, but there are some sketchy details. But uh, <laughs> it was uh, Romania in World War II. So my grandfather's brother, my, this would be my father's, I'm sorry, my mother's father's brother mm -hmm. remained in Romania. Uh, you know, his brother, my grandfather had left in 1921, but the brother was still in Romania, living in a town where he was something like a police constable. Mm -hmm. And uh, his name was Philip, Philip Blumenfeld. So the story goes that he was alerted to some children that had been left. They'd been let go in the woods. I think it was in Russia. And they, I don't know if they had been on their way to a concentration camp or something. Oh, wow. Uh, and it was near the end of the war. And the story goes that uh, they were just let go in the woods and they were left to survive on their own. Yeah. And so my great uncle Philip somehow uh, got together some money, took a train and found a bunch of these kids and brought them back to their town and, you know, had them taken care of, adopted by other families and so forth. So he stayed in Romania and from some documentation that we've read, he became a member of the Communist Party and, you know, stayed there until 19, mid 1960s. And he had wanted to move to Israel, but his wife never wanted to. So when she passed away, he, he went. Wow. And he was going through customs and immigration. And the young man there looked at his papers and said, uh, could you go sit over there, please? You know, and a little while later, the young man uh, brought him into an office and said to him, um, are you Philip Blumenfeld who rescued some kids from I get a little broken up with this, so sorry, yeah, no. uh, from the forest. And he said, yeah. And so the, the young man was one of the kids he had rescued. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that part is fairly well documented um, because one of my aunts who okay. lived there um, had spoken with Philip and, and uh, you know, confirmed that part of it. So um, that is pretty amazing. Oh, that's it's a great, interesting story. That's a great story. <laughs> It's a great story of somebody doing something good and then being remembered for it, which is always a good yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So actually this leads to the next question. What made you come to Canningbunk Port? I'm sure there was a kind of a journey after Puerto Rico. Yeah, so we had been living in uh, Newton, Massachusetts. Um, I had gone to college in Massachusetts and uh, stayed there for most of the time. Uh, so I graduated college in 72 and um, <clears throat> for between 72 and 2002, when we moved to Kennebunk Port, we mostly lived, or I mostly lived in Massachusetts. And then when I got married, we continued to live in Massachusetts, except for 
four years in San Francisco, wow. and um, <clears throat> and I spent a couple of years in New Hampshire, but that was way way back when. So um, I had been working for a, a large financial services company in the Boston area for about ten years or so, and I just wanted to really change not only careers but scenery. Mm-hmm. And you know, decided to uh, open up a Native American arts gallery, uh, which I still run, Home and Away Gallery, and um, was looking for a place outside of the Boston area to do that. And searched everywhere from Rhode Island to probably as far as Bath, Maine, and really fell in love with Kennebunkport. And uh, was we were fortunate that we were able to do that in 2002. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So it's been 18 years, I suppose. What made you, uh, (laughs) when you mentioned you were obviously wanted to open up a Native American art gallery, what got you interested in that? Well, when I was 14, my family took a trip to, we, we often took trips to New York in the summertime. And that year, 1965, I guess it was, uh, we did a driving tour and drove upstate New York and then into Canada. And in southern Canada, somewhere in Ontario, uh, I first saw some uh, Inuit sculptures. And, you know, they were fairly common back then, fairly inexpensive and fairly common. And they really somehow, I was attracted to them. I mentioned I have three siblings and none of them remember seeing them. Oh. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, one of these unexplainable attractions that Mm -hmm. uh, grabbed me and didn't uh, really touch them. And so I stayed they kind of stayed with me for for years. And then I was exposed to uh, Native American art from the Southwest a few years after that. And again, that kind of stayed with me. And I started collecting these things much later. And also in looking for a uh, another career came upon this through a you know, process of exploration and thought, well, gee, it would be nice to be surrounded by this work and uh, to be uh, offering these items that I love to other people. Yeah. And, um, and that's how it happened. And certainly you now get to, I assume, well, not this year, but travel around to different parts of the country and certainly Maine to be able to meet different artists. Yep, that's right. Ordinarily, uh, we would go to the Southwest in March. First week of March, there's a big uh, Native American art show in Phoenix, Arizona at the Heard Museum. Okay. And yeah. so uh, we did that for years and years and didn't do it this year. Um, actually, it, it wasn't really the pandemic that caused it, but uh, I had other plans and I, I've skipped a couple of years. This would have been yeah. a year that I would have skipped anyway. Uh, so yeah, get down to that show and there are somewhere around 800 art, artists there and just get to walk around, meet them, see their work, talk to them, see some uh, demonstrations and so forth. And um, and then in Maine, there are the uh, Maine Indian basket maker shows, of which I usually go to the one in December. In past years, we have also stayed in the Southwest and traveled around and, you know, visited different artists in their homes. And oh, wow. Yeah, so it's been fun. And um, also when, uh, when I was writing the book, uh, Baskets of Time, we traveled around in Northern Maine primarily and visited with artists and interviewed them. And um, so that was a really interesting experience. Yeah, I would think so. Once you start thinking about it, it's really about, or interacting with people, I'm sure. Yeah, on both sides, on artists as well. uh, Yes. (laughs) These are kind of questions about our kind of shared humanity. Um, So tell me about a time that you were scared. Um, Scared. 
can we skip this for now and yeah. maybe something will come to mind and um, we'll come back to it. Certainly. Okay. So, so can I pose you the, the opposite question or, or not so opposite, but um, do you have a, a memory of a time that you were happy? Uh, well, lots of happy times, but uh, probably the most striking one is uh, when my son was born. Uh, I have two stepdaughters who I consider my daughters, but I wasn't there at their birth. And my son was born at home in 1978. Wow. And um, so, you know what, I'm going to fold that right in because that was both probably the scariest time as well as the happiest time. Sure, that is understandable. And he's, does he live around here? Yeah, so he lives in Farmington with his wife and daughter and that's where we are right now. We're spending time trying to keep our granddaughter on track with her remote learning, <laughs> uh, sometimes successfully, sometimes not, but uh, we're spending a few days a week up here. I've uh, been doing it for about a month and we'll do it not every single week, but uh, we'll continue to do it to, you know, try and help out during the pandemic. That sounds fair enough. Nice to be in your family as well. Absolutely. Okay, so moving on to a couple of kind of your own culture questions. Do you have a favorite book? Same as Bill Clinton's, 100 Years of Solitude. Oh, <laughs> nice. By Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Very good. I read, I read it in English. I haven't tried to read it in Spanish, but I may someday. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, what was the first movie you saw in the theater, if you remember it? It would have been in the 1950s, and uh, I don't remember if it was an animated uh, Disney cartoon or some kind of uh, you know live feature film. Uh, I suspect it, pr it probably would have been an animated film that I would have seen when I was four or five years old, but Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, I don't remember who it was. <laughs> do you remember your first car? Unfortunately, I do. <laughs> um, I had a Volvo, a 1968 Volvo, model number 142S, I think. Wow. And uh, <laughs> it was a lemon. It was a real lemon. And I had tons of problems with it. So I have never considered buying a Volvo since then. <laughs> uh, I'm sure they're very good cars, but with my bad experience, it has just steered me away from them altogether. That's fair. Do you have a favorite song? No, but uh, if I think of one, I'll, I'll let you know. Okay. What did you want to be when you grew up? You know, I, I, when I was in elementary school, I wanted to be a scientist when I grew up. I mentioned before being outside a lot. And, um, you know, I always liked just poking around in the grass and in the trees and picking fruit from trees and just finding out more about nature. Um, yeah. That changed mostly when I took a biology class <laughs> in eighth grade, I think, and realized that my love of nature didn't translate to uh, a lab environment. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so at that point, I kind of switched gears. And I should have asked this before, because you noted that you went to college in Massachusetts, did you, and then you worked in the financial industry, did you major in that in college? No, I didn't. I actually uh, majored in art, oh. uh, but uh, and for about three years, shortly after I graduated from college, I, I was making jewelry. Uh, wow. And yeah, yeah. So I did that. And, you know, that helped to also reinforce my love for Native American jewelry. Not that I was making Native American jewelry, but, but I really admired it. Yeah. Uh, so that was another factor. It, since we sell a lot of jewelry now, uh, it sort of brings back that love for that craft and my admiration for the incredible talent that people have that, you know, they apply to that work, talent and creativity that, you know, I probably never would have achieved. <laughs> so, um, 
I then went back to graduate school and I studied finance in graduate school. Okay, nice. Wow. And where did you live in Massachusetts? Mostly in Newton. In in college, I lived in Waltham primarily because I went to Brandeis University. When we lived there as a couple and as a family, uh, it was mostly in Newton with one year in Wellesley, Mass. Oh, fantastic. This is going back away, but talking about uh, jobs as well. Uh, What was your first job? Paperboy. I had a paper route in San Juan and I rode my bicycle around. At that time, we lived in a condominium that was, I think, 12 stories. So my route was right around there in different buildings. I would ride my bike to the different buildings, take the elevators and drop the, oh, wow. <laughs> drop the uh, newspapers off. And uh, it usually was pretty uneventful, except for the time where I was kind of trapped by a dog on the third floor of a building. In oh, jeez. <laughs> Uh, it might have been the second floor. I don't remember. <laughs> and I had to jump off second floor of the building to, oh my to gosh. the ground. I know. I know. Well, I thought it was a German Shepherd. That was scary. Maybe that was my scariest. Yeah, that does seem very scary. Wow. What was school like for you? Well, I, I was always a good student, except when I was misbehaving. <laughs> <laughs> Started doing my teenage years, but... Uh, but I always got good grades, and um, it wasn't something that came super easy. Some people get good grades not doing a lot of work. I always had to kind of do the work, do all the homework uh, in order to be able to to do well. So it was, you know, pleasant enough, but, uh, you know, hard work. Sure. When you moved from Puerto Rico to back to the mainland, mainland United States, was that in the middle of your school? Yes. Uh, so I went to White Plains High School for 11th and 12th grades. Oh, wow. So that, that always, the transition in high school always seems like it would be a difficult one to, to move in the middle of a school year, or not school year, but a kind of a yeah, form yeah. in your life. <laughs> yeah, that was actually not a good time in my life because my parents were getting divorced at the same time. So it was very wow. stressful. Yeah, moving from a school that was uh, about 300, 350 kids from kindergarten to 12th grade to a school that was uh, almost 2,000 kids for just high school, you know, uh, 10th, 11th, and 12th. So not one of the best periods of my life. (laughs) So this one, um, this question might bring up uh, a lot of different ones for you, but um, I wonder if you can tell me about a piece of art that resonated with you. And you already spoke about the Inuit sculptures, but was there another piece that you're thinking of? Yeah. So when I was in school, in college, studying art, uh, my favorite artist was, and, and probably still is, uh, Henri Matisse. Oh, yes. And um, I remember being at the, the Museum of Modern Art in New York. I'm pretty sure it was. And I saw a painting, uh, the dancers that I had seen in books many times. Uh, uh, but when I saw it in person, and it's I don't know, maybe 12, 15 feet wide and, you know, eight feet tall. I mean, I just sat there in total awe uh, and uh, really, really enjoyed it and took it in. And uh, so that was one of my most memorable experiences with, with wow. seeing art. Yeah. When did you first use a computer? San Francisco. And it was sometime between 1978 and 1982. And the Apple computer, uh, Apple II, I think, had just come out. We decided to buy one for, I was in an accounting department at that time, decided to buy one for the accounting group. Uh, So somewhere in that period. So you spoke, this is kind of going forward a little bit, but you spoke about the I guess, cultural practices of your own family kind of being handed down. Is there anything that you now pass on to your kids and grandkids? 
Uh, well, you know, it's interesting because we were a blended family. The girls who, women who I, I consider my daughters, didn't grow up. They, they were kind of Catholic, but not really practicing. Uh, my wife grew up Catholic and my son uh, grew up Jewish. So so he went to, you know, Sunday school to, to learn that aspect of our culture. And he is passing some of it on to his daughter. So it's kind of a, like some of the rest of my life, kind of a, I don't want to use the word twisted path in a negative way, but kind of a uh, curvy path of mm -hmm. going in different directions. And so some of it is being passed on to my granddaughter one of our daughters considers herself Catholic. The other one is kind of neutral, circuitous path. That's that's the word. That's that, the word. Uh, I like that. I, I should have. Used, yeah. <laughs> and I I have this memory, and this might be me forgetting, but I think you said to me once that uh, recently that you had gone back somewhat recently to Puerto Rico. Is that is that right? Yes, uh, we have been. Well, let's see. We went one time and a couple of times in the late night. Uh, late 80s, early 90s, and that it was about 20 years. So I reconnected with some junior high school and high school friends through Facebook. And I'm just trying to remember here. So we've been back there twice, um, I think, in the past few years. And the last time was earlier this year. And got together with these high school friends and wow. did some touring and, you know, just having nice times together. Didn't spend enough time at the beach, but some time. <laughs> and uh, you know, did some bird watching with friends, uh, you know, interesting restaurants and things like that. And, uh, you know, for me, it's, it's kind of a double memory hit because I'm remembering places as well as friends. Yeah. And uh, for, for Anne, my wife, it's meeting new people who are, you know, is somewhat familiar with uh, and seeing new places. And it's just been a really wonderful experience in spite of the, we were there shortly after Hurricane Maria a few yeah. years ago, and the island was very devastated by that. And, you know, at that time, you know, any tourists that they could get, they just totally welcomed with open arms. And they still do, but it was especially yeah. important for them back then to have people come to the island and, you know, spend money. Uh, right. And then this year, Shortly before we went in January, there were a number of earthquakes there. And so oh. uh, Anne was very concerned about going, but um, we went anyway. And the areas, the parts of the island that we were on, they weren't near the, uh, you know, the, the places that, that suffered the most damage. Mm -hmm. uh, but we did drive through some of them. Uh, and again, it was good to be there to you know spend money and help right. the the economy which had suffered from the, uh, the the earthquake so we're on our last my last three questions um which kind of are are all over the place but i'll ask them anyway sure war touches most of our lives in one way or another sadly how are you related to it and of course there could be many ways but well so i already told a story about my great uncle in world war ii I've been very fortunate to not be directly touched by war in my lifetime. I know my parents lost relatives in World War II that obviously I never met because I was born after World War II, and they never talked about that much. Uh, okay. But I know that there is loss there. And there would have been, I would have had a lot more relatives uh, had it not been for World War II. Right. Um, aside from that, again, I, I've been very fortunate. Uh, I was in college and then I got a high draft number 
when the Vietnam War was going on, haven't had any relatives go to war and, and have any bad things happen. So, so again, very fortunately, uh, not been directly touched by war. That's always a good thing. Although I suppose well, the World War II. Um, well, yeah, it, yeah. I was just going to say too that uh, that war obviously affected the family in not just in loss, but in uh, coming to the U.S. to live. Uh, so right. that, in a funny way, is is a good thing because you know we're living here and, and living a good life. Too right. Yes. So good out of bad. What is one thing you wish for to happen in the future? So it's okay to talk about politics then, yeah, right? Sure. Uh, so, yes, um, the past almost four years to me have been tragic for this country. Again, we've been very fortunate in not suffering from, you know, any financial difficulties or other, or also very fortunate in that no relatives of mine have been affected by COVID that I'm aware of. But if I can diverge, I have been working as an interpreter for two or three different uh, nonprofit legal organizations. And I have been to a detention center in South Texas and worked uh, with immigrants there. And then earlier this year, just before things locked down, it was early March, first week of March, um, I went to Los Angeles and interviewed a number, probably six or eight children who uh, immigrant children from Mexico and Central America who are in group homes of one kind or another. They knew where their relatives are. They know where their relatives are, either parents or uncles and aunts and so forth. And they were in these homes waiting for their relatives to get permission to, to be reunited. And, you know, that's very different from the what we're hearing today, 545 children who don't know where their parents are. Uh, these children did know, and most of them were doing fine. Places that we visited, uh, schools, were very good and, I think, caring about the children. But still, they're separated from their parents. Of the six or eight kids that I met personally, I don't know how many of them succeeded in being reunited. Yeah. So um, that is part of my, my hopes for uh, Biden to be elected, because I hope that he is elected, and I hope that he can change a lot of the uh, immigration policies that uh, our current president has put in place uh, that have led to these really uh, tragic circumstances. Some of the adults that I have spoken with are probably going to be deported. Some of them are almost certainly going to be in situations situations where their life is at risk. And that's not going to end when, when no. our current president is out of office, but I hope that it will be greatly mitigated. So that's my great wish for this country and for people that are trying to come here to escape from danger and to create better lives for their children. All right. That's amazing. So I'm going to skip my last question because I'm hoping that you might expand. How did you get involved with going to the, the detention center or out to LA to interpret? Yeah, yeah. So again, it's a little bit circuitous. Um, <laughs> in Phoenix, I had stayed at an Airbnb that's, uh, that was owned by a young woman who's an attorney. And she eventually got, uh, she had been a public defender in, in uh, Phoenix, and she subsequently left that, went back home to Georgia, where she grew up, to Atlanta. But she and I stayed in touch. Uh, my wife, Ann, and I visited her briefly in Georgia, and 
anyway, she had posted on Facebook that she was going to a detention center in Texas to, uh, to help immigrants. And, you know, she's an immigration attorney, so she has a lot of experience with that. But I sent her a note and said, do you think that they can use people who speak Spanish who are not attorneys? Uh, so that's how I became connected with this organization, CARA, C-A-R-A, Pro Bono, an organization of attorneys who uh, have been working at the uh, South Texas, I'm trying to remember the exact name, South Texas uh, Residential Center or something. Uh, and because it's in Dilly, Texas, we just call it Dilly. And so uh, they have been bringing volunteers into Dilly to help immigrants through their credible fear interviews uh, to, to you know, try and get their stories so that when they have a credible fear interview, which determines whether they are going to be allowed to come into the country, to be oh. let out of the detention center, come into the country and start the, the immigration process from then takes two or three years. But the outcome of their credible fear interview can determine whether they are allowed into the country or whether they're sent back to their own country or the third country. And so I went as an interpreter with an attorney who happens to live in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, oh. the first time around. And, you know, I interpreted for her, but she did, you know, she sort of drove the interviews, but we, we worked as partners. And yeah. uh, before that and after that, I was also doing telephone interpretation for attorneys who were down there who didn't have an interpreter with them. I went back between Christmas and New Year's last year and conducted the interviews myself at that point. And the difference in what was going on down there was, was, was just striking. Uh, the first time I was there, we had about maybe 97% success rate in getting people through their credible fear interviews because they were fleeing gangs and uh, right. the gangs are literally deadly down there. And, you know, so about 97% of them were allowed to come into the country. Uh, by the time I went back a year and two months later, uh, in December of 2019, the success rate in getting them through the credible fear interviews was, I don't know exactly, but somewhere around 20%, let's say 15 to 20%. Wow. And it's because of the changes to the immigration procedures that were put in place by this administration. Hmm. Um, and I, I won't go into details about those, but uh, just a striking difference. So many more people are being sent back. And credible fear is the first interview is the first step. Uh, if they get a negative ruling on that, then they can appeal for two more steps. Oh, and wow. so when I was there in December, I was mostly working with people who had been received a negative ruling on their credible fear interview and were preparing for their appearance before a judge, an immigration judge, to see if the judge would, you know, vacate that ruling and allow them into the country or, or not. And they would have to be, well, take the third step of appeal, but there's not much success in that. And what I found out was that the um, success or failure in the appearances with immigration judges was mostly based on the judge themselves. Oh. Some judges were very liberal and some were very strict. Mm -hmm. And most of the cases were not decided based on merit as far as I'm concerned, but rather on the judge's you know, uh, proclivities toward oh. immigration. So, you know, talk about another unfair part of the system. If you got a good judge, most likely got let out. And if you didn't get a ju good judge, then you had no chances of being let out, no matter what your story is. Wow. So, yeah, very, very twisted. This is, I used the word twisted earlier. This is a very twisted in a negative way process that um, I hope changes.
Right. Yeah. As a result of my work with the Car Pro Bono group who have the what they call the Dilly Project, I got on a mailing list for immigration attorneys and uh, I found out about another opportunity um, with another organization, Center for Immigration Justice and Constitutional Law, I think it is. Okay. And, yeah. uh, they are they work uh, exclusively with children and that's how I got connected, how I got the ability to go to Los Angeles and oh, yes. Park to interview the children. There was something, there was, there was a, a, a ruling in, I don't remember the year, it was called the Flores Agreement. Okay. Uh, and in the Flores Agreement, there are certain conditions that uh, children who are, immigrant children who are being held in custody uh, without their parents, certain conditions have to be met, including they have to get schooling and they have to get counseling and so forth. Oh, and, yeah. Um, and they, ha they have to have an advocate to try and help them to get back together with their parents. So in monitoring this Flores Agreement, this organization sends volunteers to uh, schools uh, all over the country, but primarily on the West Coast and in the Southwest to check on conditions in these schools to make sure that there's compliance with the Flores Agreement. So that's how I got connected with, with that. Um, wow. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for filling that in. I was wondering if you could give your, uh, not final thoughts, but some thoughts on why empathy is important and where we might all get that from. Wow, that's a tough question. Um, and by the way, I have not thought of a favorite song, so we might <laughs> skip that one altogether. But uh, I'm only stalling now because I'm not sure how to answer this question. Uh, maybe, maybe I'll reframe it. Um, and this is coming from my perspective, but perhaps you could speak to why you think history uh, is important or not important, why that matters. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a good way to sort of um, frame it so I can think about it differently. So um, I mean, we, we've, we've heard about so many different times in history when people have been oppressed, genocide has taken place. Uh, we're, we talked about the Holocaust a little bit in connection with my family, but, you know, in connection with my current work, I, the genocide of Native Americans and Eskimos, Inuit in this country, has been going on for a long time uh, since you know, Columbus arrived on these shores and people were enslaved and, and people were brought down by disease and Native American populations were either essentially imprisoned or, or wiped out by uh, disease or wiped out by having to take these long walks to new places that they were being uh, told they had to go to. I guess all those things, you know, come into play in my thinking, but to make a more direct connection, I think that uh, both my parents kind of instilled in us a sense of empathy for people who were less fortunate than we were. So I think it's kind of all rolled in together, uh, the history of the Holocaust in my family, my interest in Native American art, all sort of growing or, or coming from the empathy that my parents instilled in us. And I think that, you know, I think my siblings also share that. That's another indication that it came from, from my parents. Yes. And, um, so how do we, I mean, you know, how do we translate that to mm. uh, empathy goes a long way towards making this world a better place and the lack of empathy and, you know, the immigration policies that I already talked about, for example, uh, to me, destroys lives, creates very, very negative 
environment that that harms and even kills a lot of people mm -hmm. so my you know being my being uh tries to you know sort of counter that in whatever ways i can you know it, it might be a small impact it might be an impact on a small number of people but you know i do what i can to bring more empathy into the world again to try and make it a better place and and i guess uh, that's that's about how i would think about it i hope that answers the question appropriately enough. It certainly answers the question, at least for me, because that's what I believe too. And it's certainly been really pleasant to hear, you know, your story. And I will say from a, at least from a, an overview, it makes total sense why you obviously have done all the things that you <laughs> have done. So it's not quite as circuitous, but okay, um, it, everything makes sense about why you do the things you do. And I appreciate you sharing um, all of those things with me and this recording. <laughs> well, listen, I really appreciate that uh, you asked me to do this because um, I think oral histories are good, they're important, and um, I'm happy to share it with you and with the museum. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Brick, brought to you by the museum's proud business partners. Questions, comments, and topic suggestions can be emailed to info at brickstoremuseum.org. Please tune in to next month's show to dive into more Kennebunk history, art, and culture. And to learn more about what the museum does year-round, please visit our website at www.brickstoremuseum.org.